Welcome to the Driving Test Podcast. My name is Terry Cook of tcdrive.co.uk and I am your guide along your journey to passing your driving test and beyond. That's right, we're looking beyond your driving test where you can take those journeys to get fish and chips from Scarborough or whether you want to uh, do the run from John O'Groats to Land's End. Whatever you've got planned, we're here to help you pass your test so you can go on those fun journeys. And today is no different because today i am joined by an instructor that's local to me for a change andy sinker is joining me and we're going to be breaking down the top 10 reasons why people fail this was released recently by the dvsa we will share for links for this in the show notes and on the blog post that you can find on the website tcdrive.co.uk you can find links for that stuff over there but they've released their top 10 reasons why people fail and we'll be counting down at numbers 10 to 6 and then i'm sure you can guess on the next episode we'll be doing numbers 5 to 1 so if you are concerned about the common reasons people fail a test check out this episode and uh, we can learn what to look out for learn what people regularly get mixed up on on their driving test but before we get stuck into the episode i'm gonna give you one little nudge to go and click subscribe wherever you are listening whether it's spotify apple or wherever it is go and click subscribe and if you are feeling extra generous leave us a review you can do that on my facebook page on google on apple wherever you can find us or you can always drop me a message and the best place to find that stuff is the website again tcdrive.co dot uk but for now let's get stuck into the show we are now joined by uh andy sinker how are we doing andy i'm very well thank you thank you for having me no delighted to delighted to have you on there great to have someone local for a change i've been all over the country at the minute but but good to get someone local so uh yeah do you want to just start off just by telling us a little bit uh about your driving school where you're based that kind of stuff yeah, um, I'm Andy Sinker. I'm based in Leeds, uh, mainly cover between LS6, LS14, LS17, LS15. Um, but I do go a little bit further afield um, occasionally. Um, best way to get hold of me is on uh, my Facebook page, Driving with Andy Sinker. Um, and I do have a website, uh, andysinkerdriving.co.uk, where there's lots of um, available downloads for people that can download for free. Whether or not they're training with me, it doesn't matter. They can just use those resources. Well, uh, I'll put links to those in the show notes and on the uh, the, the blog page on uh, my website so people can access you there. Um, but it is good to have you on, Andy. As I said, it's, it's good to have someone local. Uh, and you're much more organised with uh, where you do it than me. I'm just like, oh, round here, round West Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> but today we are uh, we're going to tackle the top 10 reasons why people fail their driving test because the DVSA have, have, have recent release, recently released these. And we're going to be doing 10 to 6. I'm going to do a follow-up episode with someone else looking at 5 to 1. So, in fact, you know what? I didn't want you going to ask you this, so I'm going to throw you in the deep end slightly. Um, before we come on to these top 10, what do you think is the reason people fail tests? Is it a specific thing, or is it something a bit deeper than that? Or have you got an opinion on that? I, I think people are... Tra- well, a lot of things are due to their driving tests at the moment, how they're... So there's such a pressure to get a driving test. I think people are getting the tests, going for them, and they're not completely prepared. We're looking at it's it's your test being a 24-week wait unless you manage to get a cancellation. Um, so when people are getting the test and it's getting close to the day, rather than actually postponing the test and getting themselves better prepared, 
They're just making a go for it anyway. And the experience you can have with somebody outside of you uh, will just help greatly um, for after you've passed your test. Yeah, I think it's all about preparation. I'd agree. I think that's what I'm seeing as well. Uh, you know, we want to be ready. And yeah, that means that might add in three months on to what you want to do potentially by moving it back or whatever. But better to pass, better to have a good impact on your test. I think one of the things I see is if you go on a test and it, it turns out really badly, that can have a really big impact further down the line. And that's where I think people sometimes fail two, three, four times because they have a bad first test. Whereas if you go for your first test, even if you fail, but it's like one of those sneaky fails, you know, yeah. that can build your confidence up almost. So I yeah. think I would agree there. That's what I'm seeing. We, we just need to make sure we're fully prepared going for that test. So let's let's take a look at some of these. And so the, uh, the 10th most common reason people fail a driving test is reverse park control. So I think the first thing I would ask you is what do we mean by reverse park? When you reverse dive into a bay or parallel parking, um, when we are, when you're going backwards, you've got to take into consideration how you want to slope. Car's going to go faster um, than you expect it to do when you reverse gear. When you're nervous as well, your clutch control could be off a little bit. So as you're as you're reversing, then if you haven't taken into consideration the slope that you're on, the camber in the road where it drains away for rainwater, you're going to get faster than you need to be. You know, the for the um, manoeuvres, we're looking at three things, control, safety, and accuracy. And unfortunately, we put too much of an emphasis on the accuracy side of things, where if we look at safety and control as our main element, accuracy becomes a lot easier anyway because we've got control over the car. If we haven't got control over the car, anything could happen. The the other thing with accuracy, and I know we're talking control here, but with accuracy, you get, multiple attempts if you need it well, so yeah. if you look at your reverse bay park if it's not right come out and go back back in again you don't really get multiple attempts at being safe um yeah. you're either safe or you're not and, and that's the control aspect and i think i agree with you i see a lot of people forfeit in the control and forfeit and to be fair the observations for for the accuracy but um what are the common faults? So you mentioned a couple there, like the, the the downhill stuff and dealing with the camber. What are the common faults specifically you see around accuracy in reversing? The they're trying too hard to get it in the bay, um, or where, where they're going for the they'll use things that are no good for them. Um, I've seen people before now using the car in front to try and line up with, rather than using the mirrors um, and the observations to try and get close to the curb. The car in front has been off centre. Also, when they've been using in bay parking, they may use bays that are opposite them rather than the one they're going into. And they're not always in alignment. It all depends on the car park and how the car park's been set out. If you are aware of that to begin with, that takes a bit of pressure off and you can put a bit more focus onto your, your control, can't you, do you think? Absolutely. Just keep, keep your car slow. And if you're keeping your car slow, you can adjust, you can change things. And it gives you thinking time. If you, if you could slow your vehicle down, it's giving you more time to study what's going on around you, giving you a chance to do your observations and giving you a chance to actually think, okay, it's not going quite to plan. What can I do now? I think the other thing I just want to touch on here around is, uh, well, two things around the idea of pausing. So if you're reversing, let's imagine nothing's coming so the road's nice and clear. You can still pause for a moment, can't you? You know, if you want to pause and use that as an opportunity to have a right, good check around, if you feel like you control, you're losing a bit of control, rather than try and rectify it on the move, you can always just stop, take a second, and go again. 
Absolutely, absolutely. It gives you time just to re- reassess everything. You yeah. know, you, 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 as far as examining those, you're checking out for safety as well as composing yourself. You know, so just just take your time, take it nice and steady, and just keep your foot over your brake. Unless you're honest, going up, reversing up a steep hill, and you shouldn't need any gas. You know, so you should all be clutching brake control. Definitely. Uh, and then the other thing on that is the the idea of stalling. Because I don't know about you, but some of I hear a lot of students talk about they're worried about stalling. They assume they're going to fail when they've stalled on that side of it. And I think it's just important to get across here. A stall doesn't equate to a fail. It's the the consequence of the stall that equates to a fail. So if you're, you know, doing your, let's say it's a the parallel part, for example, and you're reversing and you lose the control a little bit and stall, as long as you regain that and as long as it doesn't cause a problem, you're going to get a driver fault, aren't you? You're not going to fail for that. Even if you get that, you might even get a non-worthy. I've had I've had students who have stalled join the manoeuvre and it's not even being mapped. Yeah. You know, it all, it all depends on what you've got around in your situation at that particular moment in time. Um, but, but there is there is quite a big emphasis on stalling, particularly in the early days of driving, um, when your students are like at school talking to each other about oh, I had a great lesson today, I didn't stall, or I had a really bad lesson, I, I stalled three times. Well, one of them might nearly hit a car. You know, but it's all about what you do with that stall. Well, Chuck, this actually, my uh, my nephew passed a couple of years ago. He learned with me, and he assumed he'd failed on his test because he got cramp uh, as he's reversing. He's doing his parallel parking. He got cramp, and he had to stop for like twenty seconds and sort of stretch his leg out and carry on. And he assumed he were going to fail. And then when he passed, he's like, he said to the exam, "How come I didn't fail for this?" He's like, "Well, you got cramp. What, what else are you going to do? You did the right thing. You paused. You or you stopped even. You stretched your leg out. You got your cramp side. Then you carried on." You know, if you'd have been unable to carry on, even that wouldn't have been a fail. It would have been a abandoned test, if you like. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think that it's just interesting the way as brains go to an immediate fail because we've got cramp or, or something like that. It's interesting. Um, anything else we need to touch on there, do you think, with the reverse park? I think I said just, just keep yourself nice, nice and slow, good observations, um, and just be prepared just to slow down even more. Uh, now, there's a couple on this list, the top 10 list, of response to signals. Um, there's a few on there around the response to signals, but the number nine is response to signals road markings. So it's specifically talking about the um, uh, the road markings. So what are your initial thoughts on this one? As a lot of new drivers, they, they want to keep up to the speed with other road users. When, you, when you're first starting out, it's very important that you learn to read the roads. Uh, and by doing that, again, it's a matter of just slowing your car down a bit, just checking your mirrors, slowing down a little bit, and give yourself a chance to actually read what the road's go- what the road's saying, what they're doing. On your driving test, the examiner's not going to be expecting you to go constantly into junctions at the speed as what you, other drivers you'll see. On the main roads, when you've got a chance to progress, yes, I'll expect you to progress. But as you're dealing with junctions, multi-lanes, coming into roundabouts, they'll expect you to just slow down that little bit and be able to assess what's going on so you can do the road safely. Um, if you're going too fast, you're not going to see the arrows on the road. You're not going to see what other road users are doing. Um, and you're not going to be able to work out your lane very easily because it's going to be then your reactive driving and proactive, preparing for what's coming up in front of you. You mentioned there specifically, you mentioned the arrows on the lanes, across your roundabouts. And I, I think that's a common one because I'm, I'm sure you hear this a lot, Andy, about the, the idea of going the wrong way and going to fail because you go the wrong way, which isn't accurate. However, Let's say you're in uh, going towards a roundabout and you're on the left lane and that lane is left only. If you want to go ahead, you cannot go ahead in that lane. No. You would either need to go left in that lane 
or change lanes if safe to do so. And I think that's one where a lot of people get mixed up and that comes into following those road markings. So I think you make a really good point there about, you know, not necessarily having to keep up with speed overs, but by going a bit slower, that gives you more time to see those those road markings. Do you think that's sort of the example you're referring to? Absolutely. And then it gives you time to think as well. If you are in that left-hand lane and it says left only, it gives you a chance to go the wrong way safely. Because rather than then trying to fight your way over lanes, if you're unsure, just pick a lane and stay with it. You know, because you, you'd like to say you don't you don't get marked down for going the wrong way unless you go the wrong way dangerously. I think a couple of others I want to touch near around road markings in particular will be double white, double solid white lines in middle of the road, yeah. which are essentially, it's very basic, it's not overtaking. Um, you can't go over those solid white lines, so it's the exception around um, uh, slow-moving like machinery, you know, tractors, that kind of stuff. But basically, we can't go across that. So is, is that something you see a, a lot with learners or sometimes you learners around almost ignoring those solid white lines in the middle and, and wanting to go around them? Yeah, the, the, particularly in the early days, they'll notice that there's a bend, but not realise that the road's telling them they can't do it from the markings the highways have given us. So they will like start to drift. And if you say to, say to a learner, what can you see? It's generally the bend rather than the lines on the road telling them how, how dangerous that road is going to be, what you're approaching. Any other examples of uh, this regarding road marking stuff that you want to cover? Um, no, it's just it's just a matter of get to know them. Um, there's, you do a lot of work in your theory tests, um, and love them all over them. The theory tests they are really good for getting that information in there. I'm a big big fan of your podcast, uh, the Five Minute Theory. I advise it to all my students because we need to have a deeper understanding rather than just answering the questions. And by having that deeper understanding of the roads and road markings. More paint, more danger. You know what? About, what it basically boils down to, um, just looking down at what what you've got there, and just trying to remember what you've learned and keep that theory current. Just keep keep on having a go. Um, I do recommend, you know, even after you've passed your theory test, just going on there and treating it like a quiz game every now and again. Just try and keep things fresh. I like that, and I think that's a good point. Um, you know that that planning, that awareness side of it, because you know if we're coming to a set of lights, we should be looking for where the stop line is. Is there a bike box? Uh, is there a keep clear box? You know that sort of stuff. Because this is stuff people fail the test for going into a bike box and stopping there or stopping on a keep clear box. So you know that's stuff that people can fail the test for, and, and it's you know I, I don't mean it to sound condescending when I say this, but that's easy planning. You know, we know that stuff's going to be there coming towards the lights. As you mentioned before about looking for the uh, the lines and the more paint, the more danger. And I think that's a, a key one as well. You know, zigzag lines at zebra crossings and double yellow lines at side of road. If you're asked to pull up at the side of the road and the examiner hasn't specifically told you where, it's your responsibility as a learner to pick a safe, convenient and legal place. And if there's double yellow lines there, probably shouldn't be stopping on them. You know, if they're single yellow lines or even the, 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 you know, the lines you get outside schools, well, there might be a sign they're saying you can. But that's your responsibility as the driver to assess that. I think the only caveat I'm going to put on that, and please, Andy, chip in if I'm wrong with this, but I've seen this a couple of times. You will occasionally get an examiner that tells you to pull up in a specific place that as the driver you might not deem appropriate. But they're doing that for a reason, and they've specifically tell you to pull up in that spot. And it's likely because you're not staying there. <laughs> they just need to see you do it and then go again. Am I right in saying that? Have I, have I got that wrong? No, you're right. They'll probably ask you to do something like that if it's like a parallel park. 
um, where they'll pull you up to where they want you to be. And they'll usually say as well, treat it as a raised curb. Also, when you do the angle start, again, they'll pull you to where they want you to be. At that point, they've took the responsibility for that. So the responsibility is not with a new driver to actually say, oh, I can't park here. If they said, I want you there next to the, uh, over that driveway, at that point, it is fine because they've taken responsibility for that. But if you're going to find somewhere afterwards, you can't just assume, okay, it's okay for to pull across drives because they've said it were okay at that one. It's just on that specific location. Makes sense to me. All right, so let's move on to number eight then, which is positioning normal driving. Now, talk to me about positioning at normal driving. Now, when I was looking at stuff for this, I actually realised that positioning normal driving has actually been on the uh, top 10 fails for the last 15 years, and that's as far as the records went back that we're looking at. It's one of those things that we as drivers think it's quite natural, but as a new driver, they're going to be worried about the cars to the right-hand side if you know if they've got a hazard to the left. So they do go over the road a little bit. What we need to be thinking about is our road positioning where we need to be, uh, now, generally, we say it's about a metre away from the curb if the road allows it. Uh, that way, we're going to miss any potholes, any drains, where the rain's washed away the side of the road. Best thing to be doing if there's road markings is having a quick glance in your left-hand mirror, check the road in front, quick glance in your right-hand mirror, and just check the distance between the curb and the car, and the car and the white lines is roughly about the same. Alternative, what I do, do show to my learners is you can see where the roads are worn out more, as you're driving down most roads, you can see that the, where the most cars have gone. If you look at them, there's, there's generally a bit paler. So I get them to try and get their tyres in there because most drivers will have a good road positioning. So if they follow that, majority of the time they're going to be right. Otherwise, they're going to be too close to uh, the curb, too close to the middle of the, the middle of the road, and just try to keep that positioning. I think the thing I'm going to chip in here as well. You mentioned before, like about um, doing the appropriate speed rather than you know, copying everyone else in the appropriate speed rather than the speed limit. I kind of use that analogy with position. You do the appropriate position. So generally, the appropriate position will be kind of the centre of our lane, as you described it there. But there will be times that position needs to change. Now, that could be because there's cars on your side. It could be because there's cars on the other side and you're giving the oncoming traffic a bit more space. But I think that it's easy to get a bit fixated on, this is my lane, I'm here, this is it, or... You know, the, the meter space we give to park cars, sometimes we need to give a bit tighter because yeah. if someone's coming the other way, we can't crash. Yeah. So we need to reduce the speed and make that gap tighter. And it's not ideal, but it's appropriate for that situation. And I think that's a, a common one I see people make the mistake to try and work to a rule rather than doing what's appropriate. Would you uh, would you agree to that one? Absolutely. Like we said earlier, it's all about that planning, being able to see in front. Most learners look about 12 metres in front of the car from curb to curb when they first start off because that's the danger zone. And it's all about being able to see things further away. And the earlier you can make a plan, the chances are that plan's going to be a safer plan that you've got because you've had more time to assess what's going on. So let's move on to the next one then, which is response to signals, traffic signs. So we spoke about road markings before, but with traffic signs. So what would be the difference in these two faults, if you like, Andy? Well, like I said before, the, the traffic signs, if you're able to eye scan and not just see in front of you, you're able to see them earlier and sign um, to spot for them. So the main thing we need to do as drivers is eye scanning. Just look, look in different, different areas. Looking in front to make sure it's safe, and then looking um, looking wider. When people are driving, first of all, generally you end up with tunnel vision where you're looking directly in front, um, looking to see 
what's what's coming there. But what we need to really be doing is a funnel vision, looking nice and wide, trying to open up our view so we can see the things on the pavements. Because that's that's where all our road signs are generally. We do have some overhead, but they're not going to put them in the middle of the road, otherwise we'll crash into them all day long. So it's a matter of look, looking out for anything. Also as well, if you're looking out wide, not only are you going to see your road signs and signals and things coming, you're going to see the hazards approaching, like the dog running across the field, a car pulling out of a driveway. And the wider we can see, then we can get those signs. Um, I generally play quite a few games with my learners um, in the, when they go to Sunnel Vision, where we play who can see the sign first. Um, because I'm obviously not driving and I've got more experience, I've got to name what the sign is as well as tell them what shape it is. They only have to tell me the shape. Um, it's just a matter of try, trying to get them to spot them before I do. And I, I keep on telling them they're going to get a penalty. The penalty is usually a hill start. You're um, you're nicer than me. I don't get, I don't let them off with that. I make them do the whole thing. Um, <laughs> but I think you've explained that better than I can. I, I think the the only thing I would tag on to that as well, in particular, is when you turn on to that new road, make sure you're looking for any new signs into that new road. I think they're an easy one to well. To be fair, it's not easy. It's just one that's commonly missed. You know, I think we get that obsessed with you know turning and and the practicality, actual physicality of doing the thing that we forget it's there and you know there's some roundabouts you come to where you might approach it and the road you're on is a 30 but then as you come to a roundabout there's a 40 sign but then the exit to the left is 30 the exit to the right is national speed limit but then there's no sign for the opposite so you need to know coming towards a roundabout what the speed is unless there's a new sign and i think that they're you know easy ones to miss sometimes but but yeah completely uh, i like how you phrase that i like uh, how you phrase that so what well, Let's leave that one there then, because the next one is another response to signals. So uh, free response signals. We've had response to signals, road markings. We've had it with traffic signs, and now we've got it with traffic lights. So I'd imagine that most people listening to this will know a traffic light is. But what are sort of the common faults we see around traffic lights, do you think? Uh, people chancing, people not preparing again. Um on approach to on approach to the round on approach to the traffic lights, it's um, one of those things of where we can see it's at green, we can see it's at red. If we can't see the traffic light, you've usually got a warning sign saying it's coming up. So then it's a matter of seeing people's brake lights. If people are going around the corner and putting the brake lights on, just taking that little bit of a they're slowing down for a reason. The be- the traffic lights. The best way I have with my um, learners is I make them try and plan on approach. As soon as they see a sign for a traffic light, get as much information as they can. Get the speed of the road, get the um, what the weather's doing, and get what's behind them. Check what's behind you so you know what could be a stopping distance. Because what happens is the lights suddenly change, and then your foot's like a floppy fish, going from brake to gas to brake to gas. Do I do I? And you, usually they say, do I do I? The answer usually is if, if you've got the choice of do I do I? Yes, you do. You know, if you're at that point of do I don't, and you can stop safely, we need to stop safely so we can't go through that amber light. So it's, it's usually when it's going from green to, green to amber to red and they've not prepared on the approach. I think you phrase that, that well and you use the phrase suddenly change. And, you know, something I'll talk about a lot is that they don't suddenly change. That's what mm-hmm. traffic lights do. They change. So if we're, you know, it's the, there's some roads that you'll go down, you can see the lights from miles off and they've been green for ages. What are they going to do? At yeah. some point, they're going to change. So we should be planning for that, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean slowing from 40 to 10. It means easing off your gas a little bit. And I think one of the common misconceptions that I see a lot is is amber, an amber light, what we do. Now, 
my take on this is that a lot of learner drivers will get this information by seeing what full license holders do on the road in that lambda means we can lambda amber means we can go through you know we we all hear the the drivers say committed and then go on their gas to get through yeah. when amber means stop if safe to do so yeah. so if you can comfortably stop at an amber light you should be stopping it, it really is as simple as that but i think also on the flip side like what you spoke about a lot there was the thought process behind it the planning behind it you know we, we'll see people fail sometimes for going on a green light because it's not safe to go you know, maybe there's a yellow box in there that you shouldn't be going on because you're going to block, or maybe you're just blocking the junction off or whatever. Just green doesn't mean go. It means go if safe. And I think that these are things that a lot of learner drivers will see full license holders do and try and replicate themselves. Is that something you see as well, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've had it before where students have said, oh, but my dad does. My dad does this. I say, well, you know, let's have a word with your dad, shall we? You know, he's not doing it quite right. Um, on day one of the driving um, lessons with students, I do explain to them that they are going to become drivers like the parents. You know, I'd been driving a few years. I looked in the mirror and it was like looking at my dad driving because that's what that's what we do. We, we progress to what we've seen for 17 years at that point. Usually most new drivers start on the road and you go back to what you've seen all your life. So it's a matter of being able to make a better version of mum and dad. And that's when we have to have the conversations and try and work, work on well, is it right what they're doing? You know, what, what What would you do? What would you think your safest option would be? I remember years ago, I had a student, he had a few weeks off uh, from lessons. And um, when I went to, you know, for his next lesson, he said, Terry, he gets in the car, really excited. Terry, I've I've, I've mastered roundabouts. I know what I do. I do every single roundabout in second gear. And I said to him, what happens if you have to stop? And he went, oh, yeah, I haven't thought of that. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Um <laughs> All right, so we, we've covered ten to six there. Now, on a on a future episode, I'm going to be covering um, the, the top five, if you like. Uh, anything you want to touch back on over the, those five, Andy? Before we move on, no, that's great. Just just take your time and plan is my main main thing. That's that's most of the problems. Just take it, take your time and plan what you're doing. Like that, being proactive rather than reactive is always a good thing. Uh, so it's time to move on to my favourite bit of the show. I always enjoy this one the most, which is the myth. I like to bust one of those driving test myths. What myth have you brought with you today? I've actually brought a myth that I sort of agree with to a point. Ooh, the driving tests are down to luck. This was put on a Facebook post about a year ago, and I use this line, and somebody put underneath, but the more you practice, the luckier you get. And I, I really I like that one. Because the more practice we get out there, the more we come into situations where we've got somebody outside of us where we can say, what do we do? Help. So if you're properly prepared for stuff, yes, they are down to a look to a, a, a sort of point. But if you've had plenty of practice and plenty of experience on the roads getting ready for your test, the chances are you've come across something similar that you can then transfer over and use a transferable learning skill to be able to think, okay, what have I done similar to this? How am I going to respond? And if you've actually dealt with that in the car while you've been driving and before it's been something that you've panicked about, you're worried about, something that scared you, you've more chance of remembering that than if the same thing happens again. That's a really interesting one. Um, it's doubt a look because I, I think I agree with you. It kind of is and it kind of isn't mm -hmm. in the sense that if you're a good quality driver, you don't need to rely on luck. You'll go out and pass your test anyway. You know, so the luck is irrelevant. Where luck comes in is if you're not very good. 
if you're underprepared. And I think a good example of that will be maneuvers. So there's four maneuvers that you could do. You forward and reverse bay park, parallel park, and pull up on the right. Let's say that you never practiced your parallel park. Well, going for a test, you might not get it. So therefore, you've been lucky. And yeah. you could still pass your test because you go and get your forward bay park that you're really good at or whatever. But would you really want to rely on that for your test? Would you really want to do only 75% of what you need to do and hope that you didn't get that? So I think that's a, a really, really interesting one. I'm going to have to go away and ponder that, I think. If it, now you've, you've prodded me with that one. But, but no, I, I like that phrase. Um, the, the, the more you do, the harder you try, the, the luckier you're going to be. And it's just, I think, taking the necessity for luck out of it, I think. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Because um, at the end of the day, if you've got somebody you can turn and say, help, you're going to get through it a lot easier. And the thing is, after your driving test, you've not got an examiner who can hit the jewels anymore. You've not got your, your supervising driver, be it family or driving instructor or friend, uh, and you're on your own and you do have to deal with it then. Yeah. And not just that, I think that the more different situations you can put yourself in, the more prepared you're going to be. So you might get unlucky on your test. You could get a really random obscure situation. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Personal one, actually. Personal one from me. Um, driving down some rural roads once a cow was just in the middle of the road. Like, literally, just straddle the middle of the road. You know, how do we deal with that? Well, we can't practice that as instructors. I can't go and hire a cow to go and block the road off. <laughs> but we may come across some of this random stuff. So I suppose luck plays a part there because the more of these random situations you get into, the better prepared you're going to be going for a test. And as you mentioned, after your test. So, no, I like that one. That's a, a good myth. Um, it's a slightly different one, as you said, but I like it. So let's get a tip then. We like to leave all uh, all the listeners with a, a driving test tip that they can go and take away. What are you going to advise people to do? No matter how confident you're feeling, prepare for driving test nerves. I've had so many students who've told me that nerves ain't going to bother them. They don't have to work on them. Um, and then suddenly it's come to the day of the driving test and nerves are hitting. And some of the most confident people you could imagine, one of them was a film producer. Um, and he says, oh, I'm fine. I stand up in front of loads of people. I, uh, you know, I'm telling him what to do and all this sort of stuff. Come to his driving test. Oh, it was actually on his mock test. And he came out and he asked me what I'd done to him because he'd not slept all night worrying about it. So, um, and you hear so many people who they get in the car and suddenly the legs start to shake. It's good to be nervous. It's normal, normal behavior to be nervous on your driving test. You've got somebody sat watching you. You know, everybody's in exactly the same boat and there's not many people who aren't nervous on their driving test. It's a matter of being able to prepare for that. Um, I personally recommend a lot of Diane Hall's um, work. Um, I, gave that to, I give that to my learners um, as a course that I subscribe to for them. Um, and I do push it with them to actually work on that and we'll do things in the car. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit more on mindfulness now because I just don't understand it because um, I know some there's some students do that and it's, it is quite a big thing at the moment in the driving instructor world. It's just a matter of I don't understand it enough to be able to do that yet. So I'm relying on other people and podcasts um, like the Confident Drivers, like I mentioned Diane Hall's course, that I can give them as well as just sitting in the car and trying to keep them calm, um, trying to talk about what they're going to do. Have a mock test, not particularly for the result of the mock test, but just to get an idea of the emotions they're going to have around it. Um, so no matter how confident you feel, I would work with your driving instructor or whoever your supervising driver is on, just having that little bit more pressure put on you, just so when there's somebody sat there, even if it's having a friend in the back of the car, just that extra bit of pressure. 
think that's a really good shout. And I'm going to come back with a couple of points of my own because I, I fully endorse what you said there. Um, I remember years ago, and she won't mind me telling this story, I had a, a student who, very confident, really, really good driver, you know, really proactive. And at the end of the test, uh, she passed at this point, um, came to the roundabout. Uh, and this is in Horsworth Test Centre. And all she had to do was turn left at the roundabout, drive about 30 seconds up the road and pull up and she would have passed. She got to the roundabout, she had to stop because there was traffic. Uh, and as she stopped, she suddenly realised where she was. And she told me afterwards that her head just went because she suddenly realised where she was. And she's like, all I've got to do is go there. And I passed. And at that point, she's no longer thinking about driving. She's thinking about the test. And then she's overwhelmed with nerves and she just made a really silly mistake. And then that was the only mistake she made on test, but it wound up failing. And it was just that she wasn't expecting it, but it was just getting to that point and being like, oh my God, this is nerves. In fact, I'm going to give a little shout out now. So anyone listening to this, go and check out the Driving Test Tales podcast. Uh, this is a Driving Test podcast, or Driving Test Tales uh, with Julia Fierek, because she did uh, something similar, turning right at the end of the test, where she suddenly realized where she was, and started panicking and tried turning in front of oncoming traffic. And that was mm-hmm. those nerves, and you don't necessarily ex- expect it, you don't always anticipate, and then it takes you by surprise. And I think what you've said there is is really good. I think the only other thing I'd, I'd, I'd chuck on as well is, and I think you're alluding to this, is that everyone's different, so everyone will learn to manage the nerves in different ways. So just because your friend might have said they've done it this way doesn't mean you have to do it that way. There might be a different way that works for you. So whether you're with me and Andy as your instructor or whether you've got a different instructor, talk to that instructor and tell them how you would like to practice on your nerves and ask them for ideas for what they can do as well. Uh, and they've just given some great ones there. And, and yes, we'll put links to those in uh, in the show notes. So I love that tip, Andy. Um, but we are going to finish, as always, with a review of a test centre. Uh, and as I'm saying this, I can see you smiling away, Andy, because we know which test centre we're talking about. Uh, this is the first time I've been able to talk to someone about a test centre that I know. So this is quite novel for me. And today we are going to be talking about Hare Hills Test Centre. And uh, I'm going to be complete on this saying that when I said to you, it's going to be fun that we get to talk about Hare Hills, your reply to me by message was, no one ever refers to Hare Hills as fun. <laughs> so I think the, I'm going to ask a slightly different question here. It's what I normally ask. Why has Re- Hare Hills got the reputation it has? It historically has got a really low pass rate um, compared to the rest of the country. Since COVID, actually, the pass rate has gone up. It seems that people are more better prepared for it now. I also think it does help as well. Um, the A lot of the driving examiners have actually putting people at ease a lot more when they're coming out. Um, the area itself is still the same. Um, it's still a very, very busy test centre um, with a very busy area around it. It's a very highly populated area um, completely around it and the shops and things on the same road. It's one of those test centres where it can offer you every single different type of roads. You can go on 70-mile-an-hour roads, 20-mile-an-hour roads, rural roads. You've got everything around you um, and lots and lots of different types of roundabouts um, as well. So it's um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting test centre that's got a historically really bad reputation. And even now, my students will say, I'm not doing it at Hare Hills. Um, the drive do Horsforth or Walton, which are the other test centres I cover. I've only got about two people at the moment who have actually signed up for Hare Hills. Because of its history, basically. 
I'm going to put my own spin on that for a second because I have got my own conspiracy slightly behind why the the reputation, why the pass rate. One of the things you mentioned then was a lot of people that know Hales don't want to do the test there. Mm-hmm. What I find is I get a lot of people coming to me and saying, can I take it at Hare Hills? Because I've seen all these spaces. These people have no idea what Hare Hills Test Centre is like. It's just that they can get in there earlier because no one else wants to take it there. Yeah. So they will go and learn in an area like um, Horsworth, for example, which is just down the road, or, you know, maybe Skipton, Steeton, you know, those are miles away. But then you go and drive in Hare Hills, and it's a very different experience, as you just described. You can come across anything. So if you've, if there's any aspect of driving, you spoke before about luck, you know, for the myth of the test. If there's any aspect of driving you haven't covered, there is a strong chance you'll get that in Hare Hills. And I think that's sometimes where it comes in. You'll learn to drive in this um, uh, a nice, a- not a nice area, what's the phrase I'm looking for, like um, an area that's not as stressful, if you like. Then you go and take your test in an area that's five times as stressful. And if you're not prepared for it, you will fail massively on that. And and I've uh, anyone that's come to me and said, I want to take it in a hills, and they've told me that reason why I'm like, yes, we can do, but we are doing lessons over there. And I'll take them for a lesson first. And quite often they'll say, Let's not do it there. Let's do it somewhere else. But I must admit, one of the things I do as an instructor is I try and take every student to Hales anyway. Because if you can do a lesson around there, you actually start to see how good of a driver you are. Yeah. So I think the piece of advice I will give there to one is if you're thinking about Hare Hills, make sure you do plenty of driving around there because it's quite unique in the, the way it is, as you've described there. But um Let's just speak about some of the things then, because you mentioned about the different variety of roads. One of the things that I I almost forget sometimes with Hare Hills is the complete different types of roads on there. You know, the the the, the different types of dual carriageways. Um, you know, there's a, a little dual carriageway bike test center that's just one lane, but it looks like it's two because one of the I think there's a bike lane on it that's really wide and it looks like it's two lanes if you don't read it properly. Yeah. And you might have to go across that dual carriageway so you've got to go into a central reservation but then you've got the other one that's going into the city center which is four you know i think goes up to 70 and there's i think at one point there's five lanes on it if i'm correctly yep. so yeah you know give your thoughts a little bit more on the area and, and some of the the complexities if you like there's a lot of multi-lanes and the trouble is because there's such a high volume of traffic it's hard to see your lanes uh so you're relying mainly on the road signs and following other people and your knowledge of the area um, there's a lot of box junctions that have got bike lanes just before them, pedestrian crossings before them. So you have to stop at one side or the other, and it's it looks quite a big gap. Um, there is also quite a lot of intimidating drivers around there as well. There's a lot of people who are rushing around because maybe they've been stuck, stuck, been stuck in the traffic themselves and they need to get somewhere. So it's just quite um, it is quite an intense place to drive around, and it's all a matter of just being able to keep calm and keep confidence in your ability. I've done all my tests, including my driving instructor tests, um, up in Hare Hills. And I know it quite well, I know it very, very well. Um, so it doesn't faze me. Um, but what I do say to my students is if, if I can, no matter where they're doing the driving test, because I, I do, let's say I do Hare Hills and I cover Walton, Walton's completely separate and completely different. You can't even find a dual carriageway over there. So um, no matter where they're doing the test, I get them to drive around in Hare Hills. Because I said to them, if you can drive in Hare Hills, you can drive anywhere in the country. You know, it's only up until recently it was actually the, listed in the fourth worst test centre in the country. It's got out of the bottom ten now. The um, 
I think I'd agree with that. If you can drive there, you can drive anywhere. I think I just want to touch on the examiners for a second because I it's not my most common test center. I use it maybe once or twice a year, but I generally think the examiners there are quite good because you mentioned like with the signs uh, not being able to necessarily see the lanes brilliantly. I think that a lot of the examiners are aware of that and they give you directions quite early. And I, I do just wonder if maybe a few years ago they were less inclined to do that and that's helped a little bit as well. They've maybe seen that, I don't want to say they're contributing towards fails because the onus is always on the driver, but they're making it that little bit easier by giving better directions. I, I think that's just something I've noticed a little bit. I don't know if that's something you're aware of. or No, I'll agree with that because they'll go onto a road and they'll say, to help you with your forward planning, we're going to be turning right shortly. You know, by listening to what they're saying to you, they're actually giving you clues at the end of the road. You know, you know, you're coming to the end of the road. They do seem a lot more helpful with it. And even when we've been going out and they've been in the back of the car and they've had the sat-nav on, if the sat-nav's been unclear as to where they're going, they'll actually tell them as well to give them that little bit of a heads up. There's one of them that's got five entrances and exits to it, a roundabout. And they'll say, although they're at the, the uh, line on the sat-nav's telling them to go ahead second exit, it tells them to go third exit. So the examiner will clarify things a lot more for them as well. I had one student there a few months back and he actually cut a lane um, up there because it was quite a complex junction. And the examiner says, because he checked his mirrors um, and everything, although he cut the lane and done it wrong, he didn't even get a driver fault for it. Uh, where if I'd have been giving him a mock test, I'd have failed him. You know, they, they, they do seem a lot more helpful. Um, over, over the last, well, pretty much since COVID, there were a few examiners before COVID that weren't very helpful and they seem to have moved on now. And the people who've got there now they seem a pretty good bunch. I don't go there in fear anymore of talking to them and they will come and have a chat with you. Like it. Yeah, there's a lot of good examiners about. I think the only other thing I want to touch on here, unless you've got anything else you want to add to, is I like to make people aware of the parking situation because different test centres have different um, you know, systems. And I think at Hales, it's a case of park where you can. Yeah. You know, There's a couple of quiet roads just by the test centre. You park at side of road, so often you can get a nice almost cosy start to the test just by those quiet roads. But, you know, it's, it's one of the test centers as well. When you come back again, it's sometimes they'll pull up here, pull up here. You know, the examiners are like that because they've just seen a space. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning as well at this point that we spoke before about the examiners giving those instructions. At the end of the test, when you're all pulling up, if the examiner's like, pull up here, pull up here, they don't really care how you pull up because they just want you to pull up. You know, yeah. and I, I'm not saying don't check it safe and stuff, but they're, they're less concerned because all they're bothered about is, you know, finishing the test um, and going in for the brew almost. But um, anything else you want to touch on with Hair Hills there, Andy? Yeah, with, with that in mind, I would recommend parking up the hill, um, just going past the test centre on your left-hand side with my recommendation there. Um, otherwise, when you come out of, if you have parked down the roads that are coming on the side of it, when you're coming out there, if you're turning right straight into your driving test, it's very nerve-wracking because there is a lot of high volume of traffic. If you're facing up the hill, even if they want you to go the other way, they will get you to pull off and then they'll ask you to turn right into the, into the housing area, turn right and right again, you've got a left-hand turn, which is going to make it a lot less nerve-wracking than trying to turn right onto a bit, one of the main roads in Leeds. All right, so let's uh, wrap up. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on. I said, thank nice having someone uh, a bit more local. But do you want to finish up just by reminding people where they can find you and, and what you might have to offer? Yeah, best place to find me is Driving with Andy Sinker uh, on Facebook. Um, I've recently gone independent um, from a driving school and I've got a lot of new ideas in the pipeline, so I would recommend giving me a follow on there because I might be able to offer some things for people that are not local as well. We're looking at doing 
theory zooms um, and driving test nerve zooms and things like that help support groups. Um, and also the other place to find me is on andysinkerdriving.co.uk where, the, where I said earlier on in the podcast, I've got quite a few free um, downloads available with extra support towards the theory test, reflective logs, um, learning journals and things like that as well. And they're just free to download and use as you will. So, well, uh, thank you for your time today, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.